Hello and welcome to today's episode of The Quad Shot, where we help you down and digest the day's most pertinent cancer news. It's August 3rd, 2020. Welcome to The Quadcast. Let's dive in. First up, E is for everyone. Multiple studies of neoadjuvant therapy for soft tissue sarcoma have shown an association between pathologic complete response and survival outcomes. Neoadjuvant radiation is frequently used for soft tissue sarcoma, and another option is to add doxorubicin-based neoadjuvant chemotherapy. ARST 1321 is, kind of surprisingly, the first collaborative study between a pediatric and adult oncology cooperative group. It arose when investigators from both COG and NRG independently proposed adding pazopinib to neoadjuvant radiation and chemo for locally advanced soft tissue sarcoma. Why pazopinib, you might ask? Well, it's a multi-tyrosine kinase inhibitor that targets both VEGF and PDGF among a number of other receptors, and it has activity in metastatic soft tissue sarcoma. So this trial enrolled 81 patients of all ages with tumors that were greater than 5 centimeters in diameter of intermediate or high grade that received neoadjuvant radiation to 45 gray concurrent with ifosfamide and doxorubicin plus or minus pazopinib. The primary outcome was rate of 90 plus percent pathologic response, which is now commonly being referred to as near complete response in a growing trend in oncology trials. This interim analysis of 42 patients suggests that pazopinib nearly tripled this near complete response rate, taking it from 22% with chemo and radiation alone up to 58% with the addition of pazopinib. The median extent of response was 95% with pazopinib versus 50% without. Only time will tell if this will translate into improved survival outcomes. The bottom line is, adding pazopinib to neoadjuvant chemoradiation appears to improve pathologic response rate of high-risk soft tissue sarcoma in patients of all ages, thanks to Weiss et al., Lancet Oncology, 2020. Up second, cut to the chase. So does docetaxel and androgen deprivation therapy prior to radical prostatectomy improve biochemical progression-free survival in men with high-risk prostate cancer? Well, it depends on how you look at it. In CALGB 90203, nearly 800 men planned for radical prostatectomy for localized high-risk prostate cancer were randomized plus or minus neoadjuvant docetaxel and ADT. By high risk, here they mean men with less than 60% chance of biochemical progression-free survival at 5 years based on nomogram data. When that proportion of patients proved smaller than expected, all men with Gleason 
eight plus disease were ultimately included, which may explain the underwhelming findings. Docetaxel was given for six cycles along with 18 to 24 weeks of an LHRH agonist or antagonist. Here's where things get complicated. First of all, there was no difference in the primary endpoint of biochemical progression-free survival at three years, defined as a PSA greater than 0.2, increasing on two separate occasions greater than or equal to three months apart. The problem is that 6% of the neoadjuvant arm and 11% of the surgery alone arm received adjuvant radiation less than six months post-op, and roughly half received salvage therapy greater than six months post-op, but before meeting the definition of the primary endpoint. When salvage therapy was counted as an event, median event-free survival was more than doubled with neoadjuvant therapy, taking it from 1.8 years to 4.5 years, and there were significantly fewer metastatic events. And while risk of death was technically lower after neoadjuvant therapy, with a hazard ratio of 0.61, most mortality events were not related to prostate cancer. The bottom line is, neoadjuvant docetaxel and ADT prior to radical prostatectomy for high-risk prostate cancer reduces the risk of additional therapies, but without a clear overall improvement in treatment outcomes. Thanks to Easton et al. JCO, 2020. Up next, keep it simple, stupid. Recent sweeping changes to staging algorithms brought a huge transition to the GYN cancer world in 2018 when, for the very first time, imaging findings were incorporated into FIGO staging. This means a huge proportion of women were reclassified as having stage 3C1, meaning that they had pelvic lymph node involvement, or 3C2, meaning that they had paraaortic involvement. While it certainly makes sense to actually recognize, rather than just ignore, imaging findings, does anyone really know if involved pelvic lymph nodes should supersede a locally advanced primary tumor from a staging perspective? In other words, does a woman with a pet avid obturator node really do worse than one with a cervical tumor extending all the way down to the distal vagina? That's the inspiration for this retrospective review published in the Red Journal 2020 by Rott et al. that looked at outcomes for 632 women treated with definitive chemoradiation for cervical cancer at Tata Memorial Hospital between 2015 in 2017. All women were assigned four stages based on different schema. 2009 FIGO, 2018 FIGO, TNM, and a newly proposed, slightly modified and simplified TNM staging system. Over one-third were reclassified to 2018 FIGO stage 3C1 or 3C2, and indeed disease-free survival at three years was worse for stage 3A at 53%, then 3C1 at 74%, or even 3C2 at 61%. Instead, disease-free survival was much better distinguished among 3C1 patients according to primary tumor stage, 84% for T1, 
74% for T2, 70% for T3. Finally, both the current and especially the newly proposed TNM systems delineated disease-free survival outcomes much better than either FIGO system. This may all be because the new TNM system sticks with four categories, whereas 2018 FIGO relies on 14. The bottom line is, stage 3C1 and 3C2 cervical cancer per 2018 FIGO is now a big catch-all with outcomes that can be strikingly delineated based on primary tumor stage, meaning standard TNM staging with or without minor modifications is probably a better way to go. The lowdown on keeping it down. What's the single biggest advancement in cancer care in the last half century? Well, some say it's antiemetics. Here, we have recently updated ASCO guidelines on cancer-related antiemetic use based on data published over the past five years. Updates since 2017 include that adding immune checkpoint inhibitors should not change established recommendations for steroid prophylaxis. High emetic risk chemotherapies, such as cisplatin or anthracycline chemotherapies, merit prophylaxis with a four-drug cocktail of an NK1 receptor antagonist, a serotonin receptor antagonist, dexamethasone, and olanzapine. Lesser risk agents can get away with lesser prophylaxis in a stepwise manner. The same is true for high-risk radiation, such as total body irradiation, during which patients should receive prophylactic zofran and dexamethasone, with prophylactic zofran alone for craniospinal irradiation or upper abdominal radiation. When something is needed, in addition to the go-to agents, Ativan can be used, and to a lesser extent, synthetic cannabis. Additionally, a dopamine antagonist, such as Reglan, is an additional adjunctive therapy that can be helpful. The bottom line is, in 2020, there are fortunately several data-informed antiemetics in our armamentarium. Thanks to Hesketh, JCO, 2020. Up next, flipped on its head. Long-term follow-up of two huge randomized trials indicates the use of postmenopausal or post-hysterectomy estrogen replacement significantly decreases the risk of breast cancer incidence and, get this, breast cancer mortality, something even primary prevention with tamoxifen can't claim. We'll leave it to the discussion section to elaborate on the current far-out theories as to why this finding may be true. JAMA 2020, Schlebowski et al. Up next, in a Russia. The Russian equivalent of FDA approval is anticipated to occur within the next two weeks for a COVID-19 vaccine developed by a state-owned Moscow Research Institute, preliminarily tested on soldier volunteers with post-approval plans for voluntary vaccination of Russian healthcare workers. Wall Street Journal 2020, thanks to Grove. 
Up next, Filtered. Check out this JAMA Network Open 2020 publication by Balabhadra that looked at 888,000 patients with cancer-related lower extremity DVTs. And it showed that patients receiving an IVC filter, which was 38%, had a significantly lower chance of death or pulmonary embolism than those who didn't, whether or not propensity score analysis was performed without any increased risk of subsequent DVT formation, which is of course a concern when foregoing systemic anticoagulation. Up next, Carrying a BRCA mutation. Well, carrying a BRCA mutation doesn't mean that you can't carry a child. This encouraging retrospective look at 1,252 women with germline BRCA mutations treated for breast cancer reports a post-treatment pregnancy rate of nearly 1 in 5, with an apparent increase in neither pregnancy complications nor cancer recurrence thanks to Lambertini, JCO, 2020. Finally, tell a good. Check out the newsletter for an informative educational piece on how regulations surrounding telemedicine have changed in recent months, as well as how capturing well-planned qualitative metrics can help us decipher which changes to hold on to long after the pandemic passes. JAMA Oncology, 2020, Royce et al. This concludes today's episode of The Quad Shot. If you like what you've heard, please consider giving us a five-star rating and subscribing to our podcast. Also, check out our website at www.quadshotnews.com and subscribe to our newsletter. We'll catch you next time.